it's the order, first of all, of the way we get to know about Jesus. First of all, we hear about him as Matthew's king, someone who gives commands. You may be brought up in a religious home and you're told you can do this and you can't do that because Jesus said so. And often our first introduction to Christ is someone giving commands. But when you go a little older, you learn that he wasn't just a king giving commands, he came as a servant, a lowly, loving, compassionate servant who obeyed. He said, I keep my father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience is tremendously important. The gospel is not cheap grace. It's just understanding the matter of the difference between root and fruit. People that try to make their obedience the root of salvation, to change the metaphor, are barking up the wrong tree. Obedience is always the fruit, never the root. But our Lord obeyed. I kept my Father's commandments. And so while we first see Jesus as king giving commandments, giving orders, then we behold and wonder at the way in which he came as the lowly servant and himself obeyed. Then as we get to know him better, we suddenly find he's not just a king, he's our brother. He's our brother. He's the son of man with compassion and sympathy and empathy and understanding. That's Luke's presentation. And then when we get to know him best of all, when we lean on his breast, we find that he's God. He is God. So this is the order of Christian experience, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Getting to know our Lord as the king, then the servant, then our brother, and then as God. It's also the order of the spread of the Christian gospel. Matthew, Mark and Luke give us the same order as the book Acts of the Apostles. First of all, the gospel went to the Jews. Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Then soon, when you get to chapter 10, it goes to the Romans. Cornelius, the centurion. And then when you follow on, the rest of the chapter of Acts give you the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Going to the Greek cosmopolitan world. So the order of the Gospels is the order in which it's spread. Would you open please to Luke's Gospel? This is the Gospel of the Son of Man. All the special human things are here emphasised about our Lord. For example, if you're a human being, you have need of prayer. If you understand prayer, you'll do most of your praying as you walk and as you work, not just on your knees. If you really understand the meaning of prayer you'll find that it's more short, brief, staccato ejaculations rather than long, long, lengthy sessions. Blessing, praying for blessing on grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters. No, no, real prayer is, as the Holy Spirit brings something upon your mind, you pray about it there and then. Many of my prayers are, Lord, forgive. Lord, direct. Lord, guide. Lord, enable. Two-word prayers. Luke is the gospel of prayer. Time and time again we find a crisis in our Lord's life where the other gospels don't mention it, but he's praying. He's praying at his baptism. He's praying just before he calls the twelve. He's praying at the time of transfiguration. So all the specially human things. It's here we see his love for the outcasts, his love for the cast-offs, the loves for the cast-downs. You know, someone has said there were no women and children until Christ came. What they mean is they didn't have their right place. But after Mary of Nazareth and the Bethlehem event, womanhood became sacred. 
after Jesus became a child, a God child, then childhood became sacred. No women and children till Jesus. But since Jesus, they are both sacred. And what a nasty world, in some senses, we live in, where the brunt of war now falls chiefly on the innocent women and children, whether it's Bosnia or wherever how great the need is of the Christian gospel. So this is a gospel in Luke that says much about women. So it'll begin with prayer songs from Mary, from Elizabeth. There's not only Simeon there, but there's Anna there. Women are quite prominent in this gospel. Look at the introduction. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us, by those who were from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Who's he? Well, his name's a Greek name. He's a friend of Luke's. Let me remind you, Luke was a friend of Paul's. The gospel of Luke is Paul's gospel, in a sense. Just as Mark was a friend of Peter, And the second gospel, in a sense, is Peter's gospel. The gospel that's hardest on Peter is the second one. Mark. Mark was Peter's helper. And Mark is full of personal little anecdotes that sometimes are not found in Luke. Luke was not one of the twelve apostles. Peter was. But Luke was the physician of Paul. It's fascinating to realise that some of the people that God has used most did not have good health. And Paul, when he preached at Galatia, was ill. Remember, he mentions that in the letter. And he had his own physician, Luke. And Luke was a Gentile. So here we have Luke speaking about a friend, Theophilus. Right from the very beginning, we get this touch of humanity, friendship. Then we'll go on and talk about prayer. Come to the third chapter, if you would, and notice how the genealogy in this case doesn't go back to Abraham, but goes back to Adam. Look at the end of chapter 3. The genealogy of Jesus given, and it finishes up the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. So the genealogy in Luke appropriately goes back to the first man, because Christ in this book is presented not as so much as a Jew as man. Man, your brother and mine, whether we're Australians, Americans, Germans or Japanese, he's our brother. He's not just the son of Abraham. So the genealogy is taken back to Adam. In harmony with that, the songs that preceded, come back to the th- uh, earlier in the third chapter, and the prophecies that preceded. Take, for example, chapter 3 and verse 6. It finishes the statement of uh, from Isaiah, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You won't find that in Matthew's account of the same event where John preaches. But Luke is going to talk about the gospel going to all the world, going to the Gentiles, going to the Greek cosmopolitan society, not just the Jews. And so when he quotes Isaiah, he includes this bit in verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Come back to chapter 2 and verse 31. Here is Simeon's uh, prayer and verse 31 Having talked about mine eyes, have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, as well as a glory 
to thy children Israel. And so Luke takes in the Gentiles. And because it's a book about Christ's humanity, it's the only gospel that tells us anything about between his birth and his ministry. This is the one gospel that tells about the visit to Jerusalem. This is the one gospel that tells about at home he grew up in favour with God and man, increased in wisdom and stature. Only this gospel presents the humanity, the childhood, the, the adolescence, the growing up, only in this gospel. The Samaritans were the most hated people near to Israel. Their relationship was much like the Serbs and the, their uh, antagonists in uh, former Yugoslavia today, like the same relationship between Jews and Palestinians today. The Samaritans were hated. So let's look at what this book says about Samaritans. Come to the ninth chapter, if you would. And notice in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messages ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the people wouldn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And then you have the disciples saying, Well, Lord, can we do what Elijah did? Bring down fire. Verse 55, he turned and rebuked them. They went to another village. He wasn't in the business of burning up the enemies of the Jews. He rebuked any such thing. But the significant thing is the next chapter, he tells a story about a Samaritan. Now, this is the only gospel that does that. Look at the next chapter. First of all, I would draw your attention to verse 17, how his 70 Disciples, he had 70 as well as 12. The 12 were the inner ring. The 70 were an outer, more comprehensive group. It tells us in verse 17, the 70 returned with joy and talked about all they'd been able to do. Even the demons are subject to your name. And Christ, in verse 20, says, well, don't rejoice so much in that, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice your names are written in heaven. Dear friends, it's much better to know that you belong to God, than to think that you have certain special spiritual gifts. Much better. You know, one of the big things of the, the modern religious world, they put a lot of stress on the gifts. The gift of tongues, the gift of the word of knowledge, and the gift of healing. My friends, they have a place, these gifts. But it's the fruit of the Spirit that's much more important. And the fruit of the Spirit is spontaneous in every soul that knows their name is written in heaven. See, no one ever loves God till convinced that God loves them. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. That follows the statement being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you know you're right with God, the Spirit is given to you and the fruit springs up and every Christian has all the fruits, not all mature, it's a lot of it's green. But every Christian has all the fruit, the seeds of it, the beginnings of it. But not all Christians have all the gifts. And it's the fruit that's the test of the Christian, not the gifts, because the gifts can be counterfeited. But you try and counterfeit love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, goodness, temperance. Can't be done. Not the whole stock and barrel. Can't be done. But you can counterfeit the gifts. So Jesus says, look, don't boast about your gifts, the demons being subject to you. Just rejoice in this. Your name is written in heaven. The things of grace that belong to all believers. Then notice, please, verse 25. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what will I do to inherit eternal life? The Jews were great doers. 
They came to Jesus once and said, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And he said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom God has sent. So here's a typical Jew. What shall we do? And when I say a typical Jew, the spirit of Pharisaism is the spirit of human nature. That's my spirit and yours. We all feel we want to earn our way to the kingdom. And it can't be done that way. We've got to come as beggars. At the cross, everybody is equal. And everybody's a recipient of the robe that was taken from him, which he gave for his crucifiers. That's us. For us. So here's a man saying, what will I do? Well, says Jesus, he's going to test him. Well, what's written in the law? The Jews were great lawyers. And he answered wisely. He took the two great commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and your neighbour is yourself. And Jesus acknowledged this. He said, all right, you've answered wisely. Now try doing it. Now try doing it. Verse 29, he wished to justify himself. He said, who's my neighbour? This is always a conundrum for the Jews. Surely they don't have to love the Samaritans even though they're near. Surely not the Samaritans. Though you know the story. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So this is a Jew going down. He's probably been to the festival there, Passover or Tabernacles or something. So here's a Jew going down. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest, here's another Jew, was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He thought the robbers might still be around and he didn't want another life going, this time that of a valuable clergyman. Likewise, a Levite, here's another Jew. Here's another Jew. When he came to the place, he saw him pass by on the other side. He knew the priest was ahead of him, and if the priest hadn't thought it right, well, why should he do it? So he was guided by the priest. I used to have a grandfather that I loved very much. He said he trusted his body to the doctors and his soul to the ministers. Now, in many years later, I realise his faith was misplaced in both accounts. <laughs> misplaced in both accounts. Yeah. Which is not to suggest for a moment that God doesn't use good ministers and good physicians. I'm just saying that's not where you first pin your faith. See? So here's this Levite, because the priest hadn't done it, he said, well, I needn't do it. And he passes by on the other side. But a Samaritan, Samaritan, remember chapter 9, the village of Samaritans, they wouldn't receive him. But how willing he is to receive them. Well, all of us started off in life not wanting God. God, don't get near me, I want to live my own life. All of us started life like that. We didn't want God. We had no room for God, but he has room for us. There's no room for him at the inn, but he has room for us. He's got a heart big enough to take us all in. He has room for us. This man receiveth sinners. He's gone to be guests with him that's a sinner. So he's going to tell about a Samaritan, and he's going to paint him up beautifully. As he journeyed, he came near where the wounded man was. When he saw him, he had compassion, went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, set him on his own beast. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two pence and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. You know what they call Christ, among other things? They called him a Samaritan. They said, you're a Samaritan, you have a devil. You never read scripture right unless you find yourself there and Jesus there. Or this man that was religious but was beaten, left half dead. That's all of us. We all started off well at the Jerusalem of Eden. We all started off well, but we were beaten up by the devil. We're left half dead, half dead. You know, there's some some two things that if uh, fanned into life are good. Other things are bad. We're half dead by nature. And we're stripped. We've lost our righteousness. 
But Jesus came near where we are. He took our humanity. He didn't just shout out from the top of Sinai only. He came near where we are like this Samaritan. And he put his arms around us. And he provided for us. And he brings us to the church. Look after him. Look after her. When I come back, I'll balance things out all right. Because Jesus is coming back. Here's a picture of what Jesus does. He does what the priest and the Levite can't do. You see, religion is not enough unless it's about Jesus. Most religion's bad religion. Most religion's bad religion. Religion precipitated the Russian Revolution. Religion precipitated the French Revolution. A lot of religion, very bad religion. Unless religion is about Jesus, the love of God and love to our fellow human beings, it's not the genuine article. It's a counterfeit. It's wrong. So the story goes on that uh, Jesus uh, asks now the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved neighbour to the man that fell among thieves? And he said, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. But there's a problem. It's still about doing. Go and do likewise. What will I do? This do and thou shalt live? Go and do likewise. Now there's a problem with this. I know much more than I do. That's been my problem all my life. I know much more than I do. I am to keep the Lord before me all the day long. Often he escapes me. If I go without him for one day, it may take three days to find him again. We all know more than we do. The worst man on earth knows more about duty than the best man does. Everybody knows you ought to love your neighbour as yourself, but nobody's ever done it. We love ourselves unrelentingly, even though we let ourselves down a thousand times. We still love ourselves. Let someone else let me down, I won't love them. We don't love others ourselves. We've never done it. So we have a problem here. God's still talking about doing. Now look what follows. As they went on their way, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha received him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. She was a good Jew. She went to him and said, Lord, do you not care? My sister's left me to serve alone. Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good portion that shall not be taken away from her. It's interesting that this story follows all the references to doing. The 70 have been doing great things. The demons are subject. The lawyer says, what will I do? Jesus says, this do and live. Go thou and do likewise. Creates a problem. We're not good doers. Then you have the story of two people that's claimed to know Jesus. And one of them's distracted with what? With much doing. The other one is listening. And Jesus is saying, in effect, this. That love's activity must grow out of love's contemplation. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Mary has chosen the better part because she's interested first in receiving, because she's interested first in looking upon Jesus. The activities that God requires will spring spontaneously out of a relationship like that. We are not to be distracted first by much doing. Because, friends, everything you and I do is tainted anyway. It's never done well enough. I've never preached a sermon that I haven't needed to repent about. Nothing we do is just right. Nothing. 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 So Jesus is saying, look, there's something that should take precedence of doing. Sit down like Mary. 
be assured that you are loved. And then out of love's contemplation will come love's activity. Because the only doing that's good enough is the doing of Jesus. It's only because the doing of Jesus we're accepted. Because Martin Luther said, mine are Christ's living and dying as though I'd lived his life and died his death. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. All he did is put to our account. Not one of us has kept the Ten Commandments or any one of them. There isn't a Sabbath keeper in the world. But Jesus' Sabbath keeping counts for me. There isn't someone that's loved God with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul and his neighbour as himself except Jesus. But that's put to my account when I believe. So it's that's the basis of my salvation. And as for practical living, love's activity is to grow out of love's contemplation. Then Jesus tells the story in one place, chapter 17, about the healing of the ten lepers and only one comes back to thank him. Who was he? A German, a Japanese, an Australian, an American? No, he was a Samaritan. The one that comes back is a Samaritan. Jesus makes heroes out of the rascals. That gives me some hope. That gives you some hope. He makes heroes out of the rascals. Now we're going to think about John's Gospel very briefly. John's Gospel is the deepest, most wonderful, most beautiful book in the world. It's a book where a child can wade or an elephant can swim. When they're teaching Greek, they start you on John's Gospel. An RKK hot locus. You start off because it's simple Greek. And you read the, the chapters of John. They're very simple. But they're very profound. So a child can wade or an elephant can swim and it presents Jesus as God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world received him not. But the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. I'm quoting to you from John 1 to 3, John 1 14, John 1 18, all in the preface to John's Gospel. Now, John's Gospel is a Gospel that's calling for a decision. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have what's known as the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is a big word that just means to see the same way. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they stress the human aspect of Christ and put most stress on what he did. John's Gospel will stress the divine aspect of Christ and put most stress on what he was, what he is. More on his words and his deeds, more on his nature. So John's Gospel is the one of divinity. But it's a Gospel calling for a decision. It's saying, in effect, you've seen him as the king. He has a right to command us. He made us. Our life is in his hands. You know, I love the text that says, My times are in thy hand, O Lord. Our living and dying, if we're in the will of God. They're in his hands. They're in his hands. There are no lives cut short, really, that are Christian lives. Abel lived a very full life and he probably died at 33. Our times are in thy hand, O Lord. That's a wonderful thing. We live in a sick world. He whom thou lovest is sick. She whom thou lovest is sick. But my times are in thy hand, O Lord. He's our king, he has a right to command us, our lives are in his hand. Mark, he was a servant and we must serve like him with compassion. Service without love is not accepted to God any more than a husband kissing his wife out of sheer duty and nothing else is acceptable to the wife. 
Service without love is not acceptable to God. In Luke, we see the, human, the divine breadth. But now when we come to John, do you receive this man? So a hundred times, 98 to be precise, it used the word believe. Practically every chapter used the word believe. And believing is receiving. Receiving is believing. So as many as received him, them gave you power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Receiving is believing. Believing is receiving. So chapter after chapter talks about do you believe? He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Eternal life begins the moment I believe. He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath eternal life. We have it now. The moment I believe, I'm not only not condemned, I'm justified, which is the opposite. You know, to condemn doesn't mean to make bad. It means to declare bad. And to justify, which is the opposite, doesn't mean to make righteous. It means to declare righteous. God calls the repentant sinner perfect the moment he or she believes. That's the essence of the good news. That's justified. He declares us right. We're not. It's for Christ's sake. We were ruined without asking for it. We've been redeemed without asking for it. By the sin of one, condemnation came on all men. By the righteousness of one, acquittal, justification, same word, came on all men. It's not just forgiveness. It's to be treated as though you'd never sinned. Justification is not forgiveness. It includes it, of course, in practical sense. But the word itself means much more. It means to be treated as innocent. The gospel says God does not see in you and me the likeness of the sinner. He only sees the likeness of his son. The standing of the Christian is always perfect. The state is never perfect. Justification is over us all our lifetime. Don't think it just happens when you become a Christian. Now you roll up your sleeves to get sanctified. Justification is over you all your all the life. It always determines your standing before God. In God's sight, you lived in Jesus. You died in Jesus. You were buried in Jesus. You rose with Jesus. In God's sight, you're already seated in heavenly places with Jesus. Ephesians 2 and verse 6. You know, that's why we read such texts as Colossians 3.1. If you be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. He counts that we're risen with him. See? So John is saying, do you believe? Have you received? Do you have life eternal? Have you got the verdict of the last judgment now? The judgment takes place as you hear the gospel. If you do not resist the gospel, you are given the gift of faith. You are enabled to believe. For unto us it was given, says Paul, to believe. It was given. It's not something you struggle to do. If you don't resist the good news, the love of God, faith is born. And faith is the beggar's hand that lays hold of Christ. So believe, believe, believe all the way through the book. It sets him forth as the great transformer. Life needs transforming. I need it and you need it. And so the seven major miracles before the cross sketch our human condition. The wine runs out, John 2. Anyone that grows past their 20s finds the wine runs out. The first 25 years of life tell a lot of lies. You only wake up to that when you get past your 20s. Getting older is losing one vial after another and you begin to see reality. The wine runs out. In a sinful world, nothing is yielded according to the promise. The wine runs out. The wine of youth, the wine of health, the wine of joy, all runs out. But Jesus can change things. 
Whatever he says unto you, do it. And when they heeded that secret from the Virgin Mary, whatever he says unto you, do it, there was transformation. And there was a wine that satisfied much better than the other. And it's a wine that will never run out. The wine runs out. That's what sin does to us. Then we find a man without strength and a man without health. And John 4, it ends with a boy, son of a father. The father comes, a nobleman, and pleads for his son. My son's a Capernaum sick. And Jesus heals the boy without going. Ah, there's God. As man, he's seen in the flesh where he is in that city. But he heals this boy miles and miles away by willing it. Because as God, he is everywhere present. As God, he watched Lazarus wrestling with his strong foe death. As God, he could tell his disciples what was happening with Lazarus. The moment he died, he could tell them. He's the God-man, but he's the man that changes, transforms. So he turns the water into wine, he transforms it. The water of life he will change. He takes the sick boy and by a word he heals him and makes him whole. Then he's at the pool of Bethesda. and There's a man that's been sick for 45 years. Wilt thou be made whole? I have no man. Rise, take up your bed and walk. The sins are forgiven. The man receives health. And then we find people dying because they don't have food or they're very pale and anemic looking. And so Jesus provides the bread of life. Then the disciples are in a ship and it looks as though they're going to go down. And Jesus walks on the water and says, don't be afraid, I am. I am. It's all right. God's not dead. It's okay. So you see people without joy, John 2. People without health, John 4. People without strength, John 5. People without nourishment, John 6. People without safety, the same chapter. Then people without sight, that's the sixth miracle. Man born blind. And finally, a man without life, John 11. So you see, the seven cases of healing picture our lost estate. Without the wine of joy, without spiritual health, without spiritual energy, without real sustenance, no bread of life, without safety, The world's a dangerous place, full of terrifying possibilities and awful certainties. It's an upheaving, tempestuous sea, the world in which we live, without safety, without sight and without life. But Jesus transforms all those situations. And in John's Gospel, we see him doing as God what you and I cannot do for ourselves. He deals with time, quantity, quality, space, Death, all the things you and I can't deal with. Which of us can roll back time? A little die might help, but it won't solve it. But he can deal with time. Here's a man that's been 40 years ill. He can deal with time. He can deal with space. The boy's way over there. Come down and heal him. Jesus, I don't need to go down. I can deal with space. We can't deal with space. I have a boy in Australia and a girl in Australia. I see them about once a year except when they come over to us. You see, space, it's a problem. No problem to God. No problem to God. Quantity. Who, where we get enough food to feed so many? 5,000 men besides women and children, probably 20,000. But Jesus can deal with quantity. Quality. He can deal with that. The water becomes wine. Quality. You see it? All the things we can't deal with, he can because he's God. Time and space or quantity or quality, anything. He can handle it. It's the gospel of transformation. 
If you believe, you're transformed. But it means really believing. The evidence that one has believed is a changed life. No change, there's been no faith. We're not talking about cheap grace. When a person is transformed, they henceforth know they are not their own, they are bought with a price. Everything they have belongs to God. All they are is stewards. That applies to every cent, every moment of time, every talent, every opportunity. It's all God, you're just a steward. I'm just a steward. That is the fruit of belief. That's the evidence of transformation. We only have time to talk about one other thing. John's Gospel is a pilgrim's progress. And it's the pilgrim's progress in the sanctuary of Israel. So we're going to stand out in the courtyard at the beginning of the pilgrim's progress. And in John 1.29 we read, Behold the Lamb of God. Ah, we're in the courtyard of the tabernacle where the Lamb was brought. Behold the Lamb of God. But beyond the altar of burnt offering where the lamb was slain was a laver of water where the priests used to wash before they went to the temple. So I move now to John chapter 3 and I read, except a man be born of water, here's the laver. And then I move to John 4, if you believe in me, I'll be in you a river, a fountain, springing up into everlasting life. And I come to Bethesda where the water is, where people are hoping for healing. So here's the laver typified in John's Gospel, chapters 3, 4 and 5, the water. When we come to chapter 6, we're at the table of showbread. I am the bread of life. Anyone eat of this bread, he'll live forever. The table of showbread in the first apartment of the sanctuary. You see, we've passed the altar of offering, burnt offering. We've passed the laver. We've moved into the first apartment. The first thing we see is the table of showbread. John 6, I am the bread of life. He's the true manna. The manna that came down was round, white, nourishing. Picture Jesus. Round symbolizes perfection. White purity. Nourishing. Man, eat of this bread, he'll live forever. He's the table of showbread. Then we see in the first apartment the candlesticks, the candelabra. And we move on John's Gospel to chapter 8. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 8, verse 12. Here's the candlestick. Now when we go on in chapters 14 to 16, we're at the altar of incense, the place of communion. You see the tremendous difference between the first speech of Jesus found in the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 5, 6 and 7. See the tremendous difference between that first presentation and the last speech of Jesus in John 14, 15, 16. You see the growth, the progression, the intimacy. You don't read anything like John 14 to 16 in Christ's first talk. There's a progression in the Gospels. When you get to John 14 to 16, you're at the altar of incense, the place of communion, and he's talking intimately. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'll give you reasons why not. You believe in God. That's number one. Believe also in me. That's number two. In my Father's house are many mansions. That's number three. And if I go, I'll come again and receive you. There's number four. There are four good reasons not to worry. You believe in God. You believe in me. You believe in my Father's heavenly mansions. And you believe I'm coming again to receive you. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You're at the altar of communion. Then you come to chapter 17 and he's passing through the vial like the high priest. And we have the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 as Christ speaks to the Father like a high priest and offers his consecrated church to the Father. 
That's John 17. Ah, we move on still, because when we pass within the veil, we come to the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. Now we're at Calvary. Now we see his side being pierced, and now we see coming out the blood and the water. Christ is the mercy seat, and the blood must be on the mercy seat. And so the blood flows from his brow. The blood flows from the palms of his hands and the nail. The blood flows from his feet. His back is bleeding from the whipping. In many ways of dying without shedding of blood, try a little poison. Let someone strangle you. But he has to die a bloody death because he's the mercy seat that must receive the blood. So we've gone through the courtyard where the lamb is offered. We've passed through the laver. The water, we've come by the table of showbread, we've seen the candelabra, the light of the world, we've been at the altar of communion, John 14 to 16, we've heard the high priest and he give his prayer as he passes through the veil. Now at Calvary we're at the mercy seat. He has the law in his heart. Never despise the law, but only despise it as a method. Too late for a method. It demands perfect righteousness, perfect thought, perfect nature, perfect motives from your first breath. So no one can hope for favour with God through a law they've broken. So it's a terrible way of salvation, but it's a wonderful standard of righteousness. And in that most holy place was the law in the box representing the law in the heart of Jesus. Lo, I come, I delight to do thy will, yea, thy law is within my heart. We should never despise the law, but despise it as a method but never as a standard. So here on Calvary, because the law can't be changed, he must die. His death on Calvary is evidence the law cannot be changed. We're talking about the great moral law, the law of love. I'm not talking about ceremonies. And then when we get to the end of John's Gospel, he meets with his disciples. And instead of saying to them, shame, shame, he says, peace, peace, peace be unto you. And he breathes upon them and he says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Ah, now we've reached the Shekinah glory in the most holy place. That, that tent was illuminated by the bright shining, the mystical, magical glory that symbolized the presence of God. And dear friends, we come to Christ. And then he comes to us. Calvary is always followed by Pentecost. The Christians never left alone. The moment you believe, you receive. Jesus comes to you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He comes never to leave you. Too often he's resident rather than president. Often you forget him or shut him up in a distant room, but he's there. He is there. He wants to be king of your life. He wants to be the light of your life. He wants to be the motivating power of all that you do. Looking under Jesus is our first business, nothing else. Looking under Jesus. Adoration is the Christian's first duty. As we behold him, he indwells us. The Shekinah glory mentioned at the end of John's Gospel. That's the acme, the completion, the consummation of Christian experience, to be possessed of God, to have a God within. I'll not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I'll dwell in you. So we dwell in him and he dwells in us. Now let me make my last point, and it's this. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John differ in many things. One Gospel record things that the others omit. It's very rare that you have one event in the life and ministry recorded by all four. There are a few, the feeding of the 5,000, the anointing of Christ's feet, but that's about it. Very rare you find anything from the life of Christ found in all four Gospels. But there is something that's found in all four, and that's the story of the Passion. 
from one quarter to one half of each of the Gospels is devoted to the last week of our Lord's life. This is the death knell to the moral influence theory that tries to tell us that Jesus only came to show us uh, purely and only the love of God. Dear friend, you can't understand the love of God without knowing the holiness of God. The moral influence theory says that Jesus didn't need to die. is given its lie in the way that the Gospels put their stress not on his birth, not on his childhood, not on his manhood, not even on his ministry. The stress is on his death. So one quarter to one half of the Gospels are on Passion Week. That's where the stress falls because his death was necessary. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The way to sin is death. Either we pay it or God pays it. And God paid it. God paid it. So the one thing that the four Gospels have in common is a Christ who must die. And before he dies, he must be betrayed. And he must go into the dark recesses of Gethsemane that will prefigure the darkness when the sun veils its face, reflecting the sheer emptiness of his soul, the horror of his soul the darkness of his soul is reflected by the violing of the sun. So the thing that all the Gospels have in common is a Christ who must suffer, but who is then who is raised from the dead. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without sharing in the passion of Jesus Christ. You cannot be a hail fellow well met and get on well with everybody. You've got to be a whistleblower if you're a Christian. You've got to stand for something even if nobody else stands for it. Even if you're a lonely figure, you've got to be that lonely figure. You may be betrayed by your friends. Jesus was. You may be sold out. Jesus was. You may have all your reputation stripped. He was. They took it away from him. But there is no dodging the cross. There is no dodging the betrayal. There's no dodging Gethsemane. There is a price for being a Christian. It costs nothing to become a Christian. It may cost everything to remain one. But friends, remember the old Negro spiritual. That was Friday. Sundays are coming. In the New Testament, the resurrection is part of the cross event. They belong together. He was condemned for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. The Christian learns not to look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen get progressively worse. You see more clearly, and things are deteriorating. But the things that are unseen get progressively better. I tell you, eternity is a lot sweeter the older you get. Things of eternity get progressively better. So the, the resurrection must never be lost sight of. It has its beginning now in the gift of the Holy Spirit that energizes us with faith, hope and love. But that's only the first fruits of the glory that is to come. It's a wonderful thing to know, dear friends, that if you're in Christ, you are already immortal. You may sleep, you cannot die. In Christ you have everlasting life. In Christ you have the verdict of the last judgment. You have received the Holy Ghost. The Godhead is dwelling within you. Isn't it a wonderful thing that by the incarnation Christ took up humanity into the Godhead? And he says that we're in him and that he's in us. So we've looked briefly. We've just skimmed a tiny bit of the surface of the four Gospels. 
What are they saying in effect? They're saying, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth on him might not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the news of the four gospels.